as much as yes, I do agree, we have to stop people from making this stigma worse. But I think on the other hand, in terms of public education, we might also need to think of ways to make real information slightly more easier to digest as compared to you have this, 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 there you go, voila. Welcome to Creating Wellness Moments, the podcast where we dive into the depths of the human psyche, self-discovery, and personal growth. I'm Calvin Wong, your host and fellow explorer on this journey towards mental well-being. Join me as we uncover inspiring stories, expert insights, and practical tips to cultivate a healthier and happier life. Get ready to embark on a transformative experience one episode at a time. Let's create wellness moments together. Hello and welcome to another episode of Creating Wellness Moments. Today I'm honored to be joined by Ivan Lee, a senior clinical psychologist from Dynamic Psychology. Ivan has extensive experience in diverse range of environments and various case management scenarios. He also aims to provide mental health literacy among Singaporeans' youth. It's safe to say that Ivan has made and continues to make significant contributions to the mental health space. So with that being said, thanks so much for coming to the show today, Ivan. Thank you so much, Kelvin. It's really nice. Uh, it's great to hear such a um, nice re- uh, uh, introduction, actually. It's been a while, I think, uh, that I was being introduced like that formally. But it's a really great experience, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe you a bit too humble in terms of the experience that you have. So maybe we could start off with talking about h- how you became inspired to become a clinical psychologist. Right. Um, okay. Because uh, ultimately, in whether it's in Malaysia or Singapore, by the way, just to give a heads up, I'm from Malaysia as well, uh, actually. So just that when it comes to work, uh, I actually started working in Singapore right after my master's graduation. But to answer your question, I'm, I'm not sure how young are you, Kelvin, but at my, 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 my age, psychologist is never one of the uh, options. You know, it's always doctor, engineer, lawyer, accountant. The last one I like to make it up is called Don't, Go, Don't Come Home. Generally, that's what, how, how it's supposed to be. So same, similarly, my parents are more traditional in their sense. So it's a lot more on the doctor, lawyer, whatnot. And given that I was from biology, I was a biology major. So the only option out of those five, technically, is doctor is the closest to what, what I can think of. So with that said, I was diving into looking into medical schools and whatnot right after my A-levels. Um, but I'm not so sure, is it, uh, um, is it similar to all parts of the world as well? Medical schools generally is very, very, very expensive. So over in Malaysia, in order for you to go to med school, you kind of need to prepare at least half a million in order for you to like settle down to over the course fees, your tuition fees, your, your living costs, so and so forth. That's a lot of money. So I was struggling at that point in time thinking of that. Then my dad throwed, he, he threw the best question ever. Retrospectively, I think it's just his way of trying to save some money. <laughs> but I think, so he actually asked me a really good question. He asked, why do you want to be a doctor? So in my mind, I wondered, wouldn't, isn't that what you all want me to be? The doctor, lawyer, engineer. Then come to think about it, I was like, okay, you know what? That is fantastic. Let me think about it. So I explored a lot of different angles, like what exactly make me want to help someone? Or rather, why do I want to be a doctor? The, que- the answer actually boils back down to the idea of helping. 
I know it just sounds very noble and whatnot. But of course, at that point in time, psychology is not one of the, the common uh, um, field. So I asked my cousin, who is a, she is a counsellor in Singapore. So I asked her, she was not the most helpful at that point in time. She gave me a book, uh, Psychology 101. So I read through, I was like, okay, something really new. And as I, go, as I was going through Psychology 101, I realized one field specifically called clinical psychology. So I was looking through, I was doing my research, and I realized that, hey, this sounds closest to what I wanted to be. It's a doctor. So clinical psychologists predominantly work in hospital setting, work with clinical population. Then I was thinking, you know what, let's give it a try. Uh, I am still in the field. Generally, I'm still in the helping professional, uh, helping profession. May not be exactly what I wanted to be originally, but let's give it a shot. But I think with time, after going through degree, masters, some work experience, it just solidified my entire experience. And right now, I can't think of any other job I'm going to be, at least for now, at least for now. Maybe I might retire someday somehow, but, but not so soon, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a way to check all the boxes for oh, your parents. For sure. <laughs> and as well, I think there's a plus side, and other than your personal interest, you... Yeah can avoid all the blood scenarios. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely one of the big deterrent. But I mean, I, I wasn't the most fearful about that. But I, I think it's an overall um, of life experience. Sometimes we might not get what we want, but it's, it may not be the end of the story. There are still a lot of silver lining behind it. I cannot say that it's the best choice ever. I'm very certain that this is the only way. I'm not sure. Should any uh, um, should a scenario were, were to be different, for instance, who knows? Who knows? I might uh, where I will end up. But I think it's more like walking through the journey as it goes, and, and not to be overly fixated about I should have done that in the past. I must do that. So I think it's just some flexibility, kind of helped me to to be more. I wouldn't say resilient, but at least to adapt the situation a little bit better. For sure, I think that's actually a really good lesson in terms of mental health uh, to just keep all the opportunities and doors open mm -hmm. right? Yeah, right but just to contrast that a little bit um, I, I know in the mental health space there is still quite a few roadblocks especially in Singapore yeah. can we maybe discuss a few of those and what you see uh, are the potential problems we see today oh, sure um, I like to always compare uh, between Malaysia and Singapore because coming from uh, my, my, home, uh, my home country, which is Malaysia, um, the, the awareness actually are very different. The landscape itself is actually quite different. In terms of Singapore, I think right now, if you were to go to any MRT station, you can actually see some campaigns guiding people on what to listen, how to be a great listener. So overall, I like to think that in terms of awareness, mental health awareness, of course, with the advancement of technology, with TikTok, Facebook, whatever social media platforms, things are going well. Information is it's very easy for you to get any form of information. And I think that is a fantastic idea to, to, to look into whereby basically right now, if let's say I were to have certain signs or symptoms, I can just Google it. I can just look into TikTok. I can just look at any, any platforms. It gives me certain understanding. So I think that itself has been done quite well in terms of uh, within Singapore itself. But of course, if I want to compare Malaysia, I think it's still at uh, infancy stage. Definitely a lot of things to work on, but well, that's how we all start anyway. It's really start from somewhere. But going back to your question with regards to roadblocks, 
ultimately, as I, as you were to hear, what I keep uh, I, I keep talking about the differences between uh, countries and whatnot. That ties perfectly to my point of culture. Culture doesn't always necessarily has to be religion based or racial basis. It can be just how we are like in a, in this particular uh, uh, um, country. I'm gonna give another example again of how culture can play a role, not just about mental health, but generally how we live our life. So coming from Malaysia, it's very. Re- I mean, as we all know, Malaysians generally we have the we have the we have the stick a uh, stereotype of being a little bit more chill. That's what we always think about. So similarly, so I, I the first year in Singapore, I walk around the MRT station. This is what I get a lot. This sound by the uncle aunties walking behind me. Then only I realized it's because I walk slow. Like I really walk slow, physically slow. There, then I come to think about it. Like, is it because like me? Is it my problem that I walk too slow? I think it's just the, the culture is just different. That over here, because everything is so fast, the advancement is great. That the productivity is uh, focus a lot on the productivity, the results, the outcome. Generally, people are just quick and fast. And I think that is exactly what I was trying to talk about in terms of culture. So all of this, how we live, how we speak, the language we use, will generally shape how we are. Like going back to the point of roadblock, ultimately, racial um, um, culture, like in terms of that uh, aspect, is still a big thing as well. There are multiple research out there that has really pointed out that whether you are Chinese, Indian, or Malay, we there are certain differences in terms of recognizing, in terms of um, um. Identifying mental disorders, mental health, for instance, or mental health concerns, if you may, um, there are differences as compared to the Western counterparts. So, for Chinese, we have the very strong, or we have strong collectivism idea. We have a, a strong mindset of face. They call it a face saving. I'm, I'm going to save my face. You no, know? I don't want to like reveal my problem so that um, it lose face for me. For for Muslims, for for Indian, they may some ways uh, attribute mental health concerns in terms of uh, possession, in terms of uh, lack of responsibilities. Um, so there are various uh, um, research out there suggesting that, and I think it's actually quite common that we all see as well. And I think, uh, unfortunately, recently there is a TikTok trend of, of uh, I, I, I believe you, you are aware of it as well with regards to people acting like uh, IMH uh, doctors or whatnot. I think that itself also suggests that as of now, Singapore, yes, as much as the awareness are go- going well, but the stigma of mental health is really, really strong. It's not just within the races, but also among the public, how people view mental health can be a really um, different. So, I mean, these are some of the potential contributors, but of course, it's not the most exclusive list. But these are the main ones that I feel still need a lot of work, still need a lot of, of, of assistance to make it a little bit more accepting. Hmm. Yeah, I would say that's actually very, very challenging. Well, number one, in terms of the cultural differences, yeah, uh, it's very hard to find a unified answer that will be a one-size-fit-all for every culture and race. And beyond that, you mentioned how Singapore is such a fast-moving country, Mm. especially in terms of uh, technology and financial, Mm. right? And these are some of the things that could potentially also affect 
how how we change moving so rapidly there's almost this hustle culture mm. you know even moving walking slowly at the mrt you're getting a bit of you know attention from that yep you're absolutely right in fact um so i'm actually trying to whip out one of the papers that i read recently it's about economic burden for those with mental health as compared to those without mental health if i'm not wrong if i remember the stats correctly for those who struggle uh, who struggle with mental health concerns generally need to spend approximately up to four thousand per uh, extra as compared to those without mental health concerns and i think that itself also ties to the idea of like i mentioned this our vulnerability saving phase just imagine not just no longer about those culture but in terms of finance itself if i were to struggle with any mental health concerns based on the stats i need to fork out that much of money that just add more stress to me to myself and going back to the point then why must why do i need to declare that i have this concert i might as well just keep it but eventually it will not be the nice it's not the the, the go-to method because as we know it's kind of like a volcano situation as you keep keep the pressure keep building it's going to explode at some point in time but of course those uh my my metaphor is very much based on uh, a mood related difficulties stressors related difficulties but I, i'm as as of now i kind of exclude those with neurodevelopmental um, um, history but i think the the concept generally stays the same whereby that there, there are various reasons of why someone most people do not want to express that they have certain concerns and i think it's a legitimate one that we all should think about in terms of finding ways to kind of solve this equation but you're absolutely right there's no one size fit all so it's a little bit more difficult yeah so just going back to the tiktok trend it's very unfortunate that we we have this going on in singapore right now yeah. and uh i know you know with uh, jonathan from mm. twist he's been really trying to pioneer and make some changes and it's unfortunate that nothing's really come to light because of that yeah you're absolutely right because i i think on one hand i, I was talking to jonathan previously with regards to this matter as well then we came to the consensus that perhaps fake information or misinformation is a lot easier to disperse as compared to i'm oh, sorry my my cat just jumped from the uh, from the computer table but anyway as compared to real information like like uh public education has been done really well i, I like to think that there's a lot of resources out there there's uh, a platform called a health hub as well i think it's a uh, a collection of uh, mental health concerns or uh, all the resources for mental health concerns done by uh, by by the government i think those are well done but as compared to misinformation which has a sense of like um um fun has a sense of jokes there and i think those spread a lot easier so instead i mean as much as yes i do agree we have to stop people from making this stigma worse but i think on the other hand in terms of public education we might also need to think of ways to make real information slightly more easy, easier to digest as compared to you have this 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 there you go voila so i i think it's just think uh, reminding you to think of different approach but i don't have the answers to that but i think it's an important angle to look into instead of just curbing everyone from doing uh, uh, things although it's important i agree but i think it's just about being more flexible in, in dealing with the current situation that we are in yeah absolutely i would say in terms of information especially when it comes to psychology yep. mental health as a whole the materials 
quite advanced to say the least mm -hmm. so to be able to di like distill that and make it into more digestible and engaging content is definitely a challenge but i would say there is a huge need for for that yeah yeah uh, i think it's something to think about although we may not have the answers immediately if we have we might be pioneering already but i think it's a it's something good to think about for now so that we can understanding the problem it helped us to kind of find ways to manage it a little bit better so it still goes back down to knowing the problem because if you were to just deal with whatever that we're seeing now it might be symptomatic so it's really by, like firefighting i see this problem i curb it i see this problem i fight it although it's important we still need to deal with the symptoms but at some point i'm going to use a mental health a consultation as a way to weave that imperfectly we sometimes still need to look at the potential triggers the potential cause what maintains the problem as well so looking from this angle it will be potentially more helpful as compared to dealing with it symptomatically but of course different school of thoughts so it really depends on your your, your approach depending on your clinical uh, uh, education background as well so everyone is different so i think that's the unique part about mental health so different yeah for sure mm -hmm. i mean at least personally for me i am also a firm believer in early intervention mm -hmm. just makes it easier um, you know, we don't, as you mentioned earlier, with the volcano effect. Then, in terms of what you spoke earlier about how Singapore actually has a lot of information and awareness for mental health, yeah. what do you think can change to make people actually want to get involved or want to take care of their mental health? You know, what, what ways can we reframe it so it's not something that we feel like it's a drag to do and it's mm. something that we will see as a positive thing? Mm. That's an interesting question. In, in fact, I think that is also the uh, uh, question that most clinicians uh, as, and most uh, researchers have been trying to uh, figure out as well. So as of now, because the field generally is based on the medical concept, generally. So like there's a symptom, these are the symptoms that you have, voila, this is what they are diagnosis or even this is your diagnostic impression for instance you may or may not have a diagnosis but it's very much based on counting the symptoms that you have this 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 you fulfill the criteria this is a diagnosis that you have and i think sometimes uh, that can be helpful because it make it makes things really really easy all you need to do is just look at the list look at the criteria i kind of fit then i i have this diagnosis or i don't have this diagnosis but I think it's not the only dimension that we need to target. We may need to look at the other spectrum, which is what if we also consider subjective perception? That means how we see our concerns, how we like, because to me, yes, I may not fit the, the criteria, but I do feel that I am struggling. And I think that's something that we definitely need to also look into as well, whether is it uh, uh, the patients, whether is it the clients, it, uh, these two terms are interchangeable for me, depending on where I work. Where I work. But ultimately, I like to use the word patient more. But anyway, patients, clients, or even um, um, clinician, I think it's something that we need to also consider as well. Nowadays, I think that's a new term. I mean, it's not new, but something that has been rising, well-being. We use the word well-being a lot. So it's no longer using mental illness, mental health problems, but we talk about mental well-being, mental well-being. So that would include um, resilience, that would include quality of life, that would include self-esteem, for instance. So it may not just about targeting symptoms, 
but we also consider how we look into how we manage our situation. So it's almost like moving from a diagnostical standpoint to a trans-diagnostical standpoint for now. So it's a, it's a shift from purely looking at whether or not you have this diagnosis. But I think another way to complement it, which is, that has been really helpful, that really helps any clinicians actually, including myself, to know where our client lies. Is it, a, a, a diagnose, uh, is, it that, is that a diagnosis or not? But I think the other aspect that we need to also look into that can complement what we are seeing right now is a transdiagnostical model that sees beyond diagnostical label. So I think that might be an angle that where, I mean, whether or not it's influencers out there, whether or not it's a clinician like, our, uh, like, like myself or even uh, um, um, clients, for instance, if it will be helpful to also look into the other aspect as well. So it's, it's a whole spectrum, if I were to use that word. Yeah, I think what you just described mainly was uh, we primarily use the biomedical evidence model yes. as the main diagnostic model we have today. And it's been very beneficial. But uh, what you're saying and what I'm hearing is uh, individuals can have a very strong subjective view that at, at that point, it's, it's kind of like being a hypochondriac and you get yourself yeah. sick by thinking into it. And yeah, is that yeah, actually something possible for, for mental health? It is. I do believe, I mean, I do strongly believe that there's something that is very, very feasible as well. In fact, the term mental health literacy, I mean, as we all know, I mean, we always talk, I mean, many of us, we use the word mental health literacy, whether or not we understand that. In fact, the original concept dated back in 1997, the, the original founder of this term, actually based um, this concept on health literacy. And that itself is, again, based on the knowledge, knowledge, whether uh, uh, recognition, whether or not you can recognize the symptoms based on knowledge, whether or not you know where to seek help, you know what are the risk factors, you know where to, uh, you know the potential uh, uh, ways to, to seek help. And last but not least, the attitude. Although it's somewhat, or there is a certain element of, um, the transdiagnostical model, the attitude technically is what the way we see things. It's, it's very hard to quantify it, but it's some way that we see it. So I think there is an original concept of that, but predominantly, whether is it a mental health literacy or even psychological field, it started from a medical school of thoughts. So even for psychology, clinical psychology, for instance, it stems from like psychiatry, for instance, like clients have this, this, this symptoms, this is a diagnosis, even diagnostical statis, uh, diagnostic statistics manual, or what we call DSM generally, is basically a, 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 a reference that we tend to, we, as clinicians, we use a lot in terms of uh, looking at, uh, speaking to our clients, whether or not they meet the system criteria. That itself is very much on a symptomatic checklist. You have this check, you have that check. But of course, it's not, it's, it shouldn't be in a matter of, I ask you a yes or no question. It should be like very thorough, check uh, about uh, about the symptoms rather than do you have this do you have that check, 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 check. doesn't really work that way but the concept remains whereby it's a lot easier to measure when there is a quantifiable symptoms symptom counts we call it so it's a lot easier as compared to subjective perception i understand it's important like i highlighted just now transdiagnostic model but it's very hard to quantify your perception i mean it's not the easiest to look into that, like how 
the, the question how do you feel itself is very hard to quantify if i were to ask you zero uh, to five five being great how would you feel you might say four three zero but your zero and my zero can be very different your five and my five can be different so how can we quantify that i think that is still a question that we asked uh, is still mind-boggling for now but i'm happy to see this shift beginning that's, that is, has already begin, begun, sorry. Uh, but it's not the fastest towards the direction, but I think it's good to consider the other con uh, this concept as well so that we can be more holistic in the matter. Hey there, amazing listeners. Before we dive deeper in today's insightful conversation, I want to take a quick moment to give a shout out to the driving force behind this podcast, my very own mental health-focused creative production agency, Calvin Wong Media. As you know, creating wellness moments is all about exploring the depths of the human psyche and fostering personal growth. And guess what? It would not be possible if it were not for Calvin Wong Media. We conceptualize, humanize, and bring your story to life using unique storytelling techniques that engages the audience. So, the next time you're inspired by an episode or find yourself engaged in a thought-provoking conversation here, remember, that's the result of the support of Calvin Wong Media and its lovely kinds. If you're looking to amplify your message, tell your story with authenticity, and connect with your audience on a deeper level, reach out to us at calvinwongmedia.com. Now back to the conversation on creating wellness moments. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of that, actually, so the last podcast I just released, mm. where I was talking to Dr. Besh from Mobio Interactive, and they're making this product that essentially is able to objectively diagnose you on a psychiatric level mm. based on certain biomarkers and facial expressions and whatnot. Mm. And just from talking to you now, it, it begs a question still that if you were to show a client or a patient such diagnostic results, would they still have this kind of subjective feeling, you know, versus if I were to go to a doctor when I broke my leg and get an x-ray and I see my leg is broken, mm -hmm. clearly we probably believe the doctor yeah. um, and we feel the pain, right? Yes. Versus if someone gets, you know, this, objective psychiatry uh, test done and they say you know i have i feel like i have depression but then the tool says they don't for example like I, that that actually is a very common scenarios that we will see as well clients come in with uh, various um, concerns that they have those are valid for for sure but how we usually would go about it, of course, we have to run different tools, different tests, different assessments as well. Um, so it, it depends on the clinician. Every one of us are trained in a different uh, school of thoughts. So we come in a different background. But personally, what I would usually do is we have to run certain tests, different assessments based on what the client has shared. The idea is to rule out whatever difficulties that they are sharing. So for instance, my client, uh, client came in and uh, talked about I have had, uh, I, I couldn't sleep for the longest time. I couldn't eat so well. Uh, I've been having these thoughts, uh, negative thoughts, so on and so forth. Naturally, as a clinician, I need to run uh, a test to basically rule out any form of depressive disorders. So that's a very a basic concept. Then here's the, here's the tricky part. 
even if you don't meet the full criteria for, for instance, major depressive disorder or previously called clinical de depression, even if you don't meet, but it doesn't negate the fact that you have certain symptoms. So let's say you may not meet like six out of nine, for instance, I mean, if you were to follow the symptom count, but it doesn't mean that you don't have any other uh, symptoms. For instance, client did share that he or she has trouble sleeping, he or she has difficulty eating. We have to still look into that as well. Just because there's no diagnosis doesn't mean there is no problem. And I think that is the way that we should operate as well. But of course, it, one of the very common questions I will also ask my clients is that, what's the purpose of having a diagnosis for you? So for instance, let's say this person has been hopping from clinics to clinics looking for an answer, looking for a diagnosis. I, I do strongly think that I have depression, for instance. And my question, and, and I think that's a very valid question for me to know, like what's the, what's the utility of this diagnosis? I, I, do you want to apply for certain like, like arrangement? Do you need that for your, for your work, like any form of accommodation for your work? Like what's the purpose of you wanting to know that? So I think understanding that as at the back of my mind as a clinician is very, very important as well. It could be a, a peace of mind. Some client really just want an answer. And I think after doing certain tests, it helps them to understand that, huh, so I don't have that, but I do have some symptoms and I can definitely work towards it. So again, it did, of course, if we were to talk about extreme cases, there will be another extreme ones whereby like, no, I don't believe you, I'm gonna to jump to another clinician. It's very possible, but it still goes back to understanding what's the purpose of having a diagnosis. Whether is it from my end as a clinician, why do I pro provide, what, why do I diagnose this person? And also for from the client's point of view, why do they need this diagnosis? What's the purpose of it? Once we have that figure out, I think it's a lot easier to, going back to your question, to answer that scenario itself. So sometimes they will accept, most of the time they might. I mean, most clients are they're actually quite sweet. I mean, they, came, they, they, they come over to the clinic for a reason. And I think that is exactly what we need to find out. What's the reason behind them waking up in the morning, taking grab or even MRT or even drive all the way to our clinic, sit down, talk to us for about an hour or more. There must be a purpose of them doing so much work. So I think it's our responsibility as a clinician to look into that and hopefully being able to justify, no, I wouldn't say justify, but being able to help them to, to bring certain uh, insight to what is potentially they are struggling with. Yeah, I think that's a actually very important question to, to ask your patient why they want the diagnosis mm. in the first place. Mm. Uh, it will give you more context. And as you said earlier, you know, the DSM, as much as it helps, mm. you have to go beyond the checklist and use your own school of thought Right, in order to treat this patient with the utmost care. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, and just going a little bit more specific in terms of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. I know you have some different scenarios in terms of what type of patients you treat. Perhaps you could share um, what modalities you have and what type of patients you have, and maybe the nuances between them. Mm. So predominantly, so uh, as mentioned, uh, I was I graduated from Malaysia. That my first job is actually with uh, KKH, which is uh, the Women and Children Hospital. Predominantly, I work with uh, um, schoolgoers, 
from age of seven all the way up to 19 and working with parents and collaborate uh, collaborate with um, school counselors or school personnel sometimes. As of now, uh, in, in the current practice that I am right now, uh, it's still seeing a lot more on the younger side, the younger children as well, or youth, if I would have used that, that term. Although youth, okay, the term youth is very white. According to, I think, National Youth Council is 15 to 35. So technically speaking, we are all still youth right now. <laughs> so it really depends. But my uh, predominant, I'm working with a younger population. But on and off, I do speak to parents as well. Sometimes parents' mental health is still an important aspect that we need to look into prior to working directly with children as well. So that will be something uh, uh, that the population I deal with. However, in terms of training, because as clinical psychologists, we are generally trained in um, the adult population. Although we do uh, look into tools, uh, we do look into assessment uh, uh, items that uh, that perhaps like, that, that is helpful for the children. For instance, IQ test. We still have to understand how that works and whatnot like that. But the modality itself generally, uh, for those who are trained, including myself in clinical psychology, CBT is a classic one, cognitive behavioral therapy. That's like a classic method that we all be trained in. But however, um, I mean, I've talked too much on, about this on LinkedIn already. I, mean, I like to believe that as much as I'm trained in that, I still cannot consider myself a CBT therapist, as we say. Whatever whatever causes I attended, whether it's a one-day course, or a few weeks course, I do not consider myself a therapist until I am given that cert that you say that you are certified to be this therapist. But if I don't, I would use all of this knowledge as a way to open up, open my clients up. Basically. So it's almost like a extra tool within the toolbox for me to connect to my client. So for instance, if, if let's say I am talking to... <coughs> youth, I need to adjust the way I speak to them. If I'm talking to parents, I need to adjust the way I speak to them. So if I am to put a term to my modality, the, the method that, that operate, I will actually use the word Rogerian, which basically I like to believe that client knows best, which is true. I may be good or I may know a lot more about diagnosis. I may know how to ask them questions or even help to build insight, depending on my modality, of course. But client knows themselves a lot better than I do. Parents know their children a lot better than I do. I, I see them for like a couple of hours at best in total. Uh, uh, maybe in a year, if I'm lucky enough, I might see them 52 hours if they were to attend 52 times, which is not, I mean, that is actually not possible. Actually. Uh, but if we were to use that as an example, but parents see their child or children for like the longest time, or, or, or the couples meet each other like more than years, talk to each other or even as adults, they live their life for the past like 20, 30, 40 years. They should know themselves a lot better. And yes, they might get entangled a little bit with whatever they are struggling with. That's exactly my role. From a third person point of view, kind of use a helicopter viewpoint, look from a bird's eye view if I were to use that word. So it's a lot clearer to see like, okay, these are what you are sharing. Let's find a team. Like, what is this all about? So you have this, 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 this problem. Let's try to draw some strings. Like let's connect them together. What are we seeing? What's the pattern? Ultimately, as much as there's a lot of talking in the field, a lot of people think that we are just this money is very easy to earn. That we just sit there, talk to people, voila, we have like a few hundred dollars. 
but there's a lot of thoughts behind there's a lot of scientific um, research behind it there's a lot of um, different processes going as much as we are connecting to clients i'm going to give an example it's almost like i'm talking to you right now well, i mean there's a lot of thoughts going on there but at the back of my mind i need to figure out so kelvin was mentioning about this just now i need to keep i need to kind of uh, make a mental note of why he said this i need to check with him later i need to also ask him what he has talked about last week as well there's a lot of things going on it's not just about us crossing our leg ask how do you feel then we get a couple of uh, it looks cool yes i have to agree it looks nice especially the media portrayers like a, like some sort of like superior complex person or like just cross our leg some way somehow we solve some problem solve a crime for instance yes some of us may be able to do so but i think that is uh that may be the over exaggeration of how we are like on a day-to-day -day basis yeah it would be nice if we can all like that for sure but that would be something i'm happy about but it's not like that in general but nonetheless i think um that would be the common thing that that, that uh, common modality that we were trained cbt in terms of nuances wise uh it still goes back to the previous point that because it's so hard to quantify it can be a bit difficult to quantify our clients well-being sometimes of course there are certain tools out there where the, if, let's say you are anxious there's definitely anxiety tools out there to kind of measure uh, of what's going on but generally mental health as much as it's not invisible it can be a little bit hard to detect or rather it can be very hard to know whether or not you're improving so that is still something that not it doesn't just bother the clients but at some point it does bother clinicians as well so that's where the nuances come in whereby how do we know at what point we let our clients go what's the balance in between what's the what should we do what's the operation what's the guideline that we're supposed to follow so different school of thoughts and i think because it's so wide that makes it very difficult at some point in time <laughs> yeah thank you so much for for the well thought out answer it's clear that you have uh, a lot of expertise but but beyond that what i really love is how you're very open in terms of in terms of the psychiatry field and, and what you do it's it's not so much uh this is what the dsm says you're very open to exploring what's beyond the current models and seeing how you could actually pioneer better ways to help uh, people in mental health well-being. Yeah. So uh, last thing we, before we take off, uh, earlier you mentioned before the podcast that you're actually taking your PhD. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, uh, congratulations on that. Thank but you, thank you. Can we maybe just share a little bit about you know why why you're doing it and what what you hope to achieve from uh, this education fantastic thank you so much for asking that i mean uh prior to you uh, uh, asking that i feel like you know i wanted to talk a little bit more about that i'm very excited talking uh, about my project not because it's my phd as per se because i do feel that it's connected to what is happening in the field as well so if you were to notice like i keep talking about differences in culture differences in how we approach uh, our mental health uh, topics how then i talk about youth i also talk about measurement like how do we measure how do we quantify it that's exactly what i'm currently looking at as uh, right now which is to capture cultural differences in uh, our mental health understanding 
my focus predominantly is with youth, although the youth, like I mentioned, is 15 to 35, is a big range. But I want to also look at parents of those youth, mental health professionals that manages, I wouldn't say manage those youth, but manages youth in general. Are we seeing, are there any differences in how we see mental health, for instance? Because for youth, let's say for, for instance, 17, 18, or even 20 years old, the way they see mental health can be very different as compared to the parents. Then, of course, professionals may have a very different viewpoint as well. Is that why we are unable to breach uh, this mental health literacy that we are seeing right now? So going back to the original point where we talk about this uh, stigma, TikTok, and, and misinformation, is it potentially because as clinician like myself, I have the assumption that clients know exactly what I know. Or rather, when I say, I mean, it's quite common for clinicians. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty as well. Sometimes when I tell my clients what they are struggling, it, there's a lot of terminologies comes out. There's a lot of jargons. And that's not the most helpful sometimes. I mean, if let's say your, your clients are very, is highly educated, I think that's okay. But again, certain times, certain languaging has to be more, we have to be more mindful about that. So I think looking, so it's really going from the bottoms up of approach whereby we look at, how youth, how the parents, how professionals actually view mental health. So what, 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 what's, their, what's their thought about mental health? When I talk about mental health, what, what first comes to their mind? Is it a specific diagnosis we're looking at? Are we looking at like how do they feel on the day? So I think looking into that, it will kind of help me to kind of gauge whether or not in terms of Singapore, we at least within the population that I, I, I speak to, are we more towards the diagnostical model, the, bio, the biomedical model, or are we looking more towards a transdiagnostical? It's about me, about how I feel about it, my subjective perception. So once that is hopefully settled, hopefully we can figure out a certain patent, then I'm also thinking of asking questions, uh, further questions, especially about how do we know you are, how do we know we are improving in terms of our mental health? So for instance, the questions that I might potentially throw out would be, so how do you know you are improving? How do you know you are worsening for now? Your mental health is worsening. What helps you to gauge? So if let's say there's no symptom counts, then how do you know you're getting better? Is it purely based on how you feel? But there must be a certain guideline, right? Like how you feel. It's almost the same as I use the word happy and excited. Both are, both are generally still on the happy zone, but there's a difference in terms of these two emotions. Are we using different words to explain it? Or what are we looking at? So right after we, like, hopefully I can understand how they differentiate their, their, their perception, for instance, then perhaps using that as a model to look into what are the tools that we can create to measure that. For now, there are various tools out there looking at quality of life, life satisfaction, well-being skill. That's a lot of positive and negative um, effect scale, so on and so forth. But I think I'm trying to look into more towards Singapore context. Even that we, we are multicultural, Singapore is like a melting pot of different cultures. And now we have diff we have a lot of foreigners joining us as well. And I think that's, a, I'm one of them too. Anyway, so so we have everyone really like coming into this uh, small little island. And there's a lot of things that there might be potentially some cultural differences that we need to also look into rather than just adapting from a Western tool perhaps creating one that's so uh, that is 
I wouldn't say purely, but at least it's more relevant to our context. It will help us to be more sure of what is currently happening within the field. And of course, the, the grand objective and ambition would be using that as a way to measure the entire Singapore population's mental uh, well-being. But of course, that is a, a dream. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, think that it will be that direction for now, but I think looking from the bottoms-up approach, stuff from the ground, hearing from people, exactly like what you're doing right now, Kelvin. You hear from people, you listen to uh, different um, speakers, you listen to everyone, the needs of your, your audience, and I think that is really, really amazing. That's how we should all start and begin. From there, then we figure out what exactly we can do in a more accurate and appropriate manner. So that is the goal that I'm aiming to approach. Trust diagnostical met uh, method, yes, but I still think that it boils back down to what my participants eventually want to share with me. So I'm quite open for that. Yeah. Finger crossed that things are going well uh, for now. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is you want to start empathizing and connecting with any given di demographic. And then from there, we're able to start quantifying certain milestones, if you will, for yes. their progress. And uh, that will differ from every demographic, from culture, race, age. And you're starting with Singapore. And that's already a very big task to ask, I imagine. Hopefully, uh, hopefully things are well. But I think uh, the, the the main reason of me wanting to do this is so that because um, Singapore, I think, is a great place to start. Like I mentioned at the very beginning, mental health awareness are doing. I mean, the, the campaigns are doing really, really well for now. So I would like to use this as like a stepping stone as to seeing like, are we looking? Uh, is it really because of the culture that is actually uh, impeding someone from seeking help? So if let's say I we not just I we as clinicians or general public can figure out this piece of the puzzle, I'm hoping one day we can all just go and see a therapist or counselor or psychologist whenever we just don't feel well. But again, what is the well? How do we measure that? The goal would be eventually you wake up one day, let's say you have headache, you are so chill and, and so cool that I want to see a doctor, a GP, for instance, yeah. general practitioner for my, for my headache. I'm hoping that will eventually happen for mental health as well. But of course, um, big dream, it's a huge plan, it's a great ambition. But I think it's definitely something that's very, very feasible, something possible as well. May not be within these five to ten years. But well, who is there to stop us from dreaming, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, of course. So thank you so much for the conversation and all your endeavors to create more wellness moments to for everyone. Thank so, you so uh, much, Kelvin. If you want to connect with Ivan, I will put some information down below and uh, yeah, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much.